0: Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified
1: missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Inside the IC. My guest today is Rebecca Morgan, Deputy Assistant Director for Enterprise Threat Mitigation at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, Rebecca, it's Insider Threat Awareness Month. You're also Deputy Director of the National Insider Threat Task Force. Can you kind of start out by just explaining what insider threat programs are and just what should people be aware of when it comes to these these types of programs around insider threats?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. And it's such an interesting position to be in because when we think of insider threat, most folks, you think of spying or espionage. I know I certainly did when I started out in this field, having come from a counterintelligence background, I thought, oh, I know exactly how to do that. And it turns out that I really didn't. So there was a real paradigm shift about 10 years ago, it's been 11 years now, when a new executive order came out requiring federal departments and agencies to institute national insider threat programs. And these are programs that really addressed um, the full spectrum of insider risk in a different way than we had before. Obviously, uh, spying is a concern, and it's something that we addressed from a law enforcement or maybe a security or a counterintelligence perspective. But the truth is that insider risk can come in a lot of different manifestations. So yes, we have uh, spies and espionage, But we are also looking at things like fraud and theft and loss of sensitive but unclassified information. We also see, sadly, acts of workplace violence, harm to self or others, this whole range of risk and vulnerability that can come from the insider, from the workforce. And so, what insider threat programs are are multidisciplinary teams that combine those traditional realms CI, security, law enforcement. But also with cybersecurity, information security, personnel security, human resources, mental health and behavioral science, legal privacy and civil liberty protections. So this group works together to really assess risk and then take actions to mitigate it through deterrence, detection, and risk management practices. And, you know, those are things that really are designed to be proactive. So we're looking to identify vulnerabilities long before any kind of negative event occurs. Um, A lot of people think of insider threat programs as maybe a gotcha program or we're there to catch bad guys. And we certainly do that. Um, But 99% of the time, what we're doing is identifying folks who are just vulnerable. And those vulnerabilities can come from all kinds of sources, everything from your professional life your personal life, financial things, things going on in the environment that make you more vulnerable to committing negative workplace actions, or in some cases, more susceptible to uh, targeting and recruitment by an adversary. And so our real goal is to come together as a team and find intervention points, places where uh, when we notice that maybe you're struggling with something, we can get you resources and help that you need and most times this will allow an individual to keep their job to keep their access if they have a clearance while protecting the organization from that full range of risk the problem happens when um, there's not a good response to those vulnerabilities and so things like maladaptive organizational response would be to ignore behaviors of concern, or react inappropriately to them, or do things that would violate the privacy and civil liberties of the workforce, and that really can exacerbate and increase the likelihood that there's going to be a negative event. So what we look for is a proactive organizational response, and that will help us to mitigate risk. One of the things that we know that helps do that is awareness and education, hence National Insider Threat Awareness Month. It's a chance for us every year to share information, both with the federal workforce, as well as uh, security, insider threat, counterintelligence practitioners about the best way uh, to recognize, report, and manage those risks that we all have in our organizations.
1: Got it. Yeah, that's a great overview, and you know we're gonna talk about this year's theme for the Insider Threat Awareness Month. But just based on what you just said, I wanted to go actually back to last year's theme, which I believe was workplace sure. culture, and what you just described really is, is workplace culture uh, issues. It's it's how people are. Taking care of each other uh, in a certain way, and of course, that's a lot different as, as you've said, pointed out than perhaps the conception of what an insider threat is all a program is all about it, it, finding the bad guys. Are, are you seeing insider threat programs really have success in embracing this holistic approach to workplace culture and mental health, where it's not just about you know flagging an issue and kicking it over to law enforcement or the security organization?
0: We absolutely are. And I'm so glad you brought that up. We did focus on workplace culture last year. We continue to carry that theme as a point of maturity for both federal insider threat programs and a recommended best practice for our private sector partners out there in critical infrastructure, the defense industrial base, elsewhere. You know, I I mentioned maladaptive organizational response. That's a really fancy way of saying crappy leadership. Um, Most insider threats are not born, they're made over time. And they're made over time when there's not um, a good facilitated way to mitigate folks' vulnerabilities and risk. We've seen studies demonstrate that organizations with positive culture and a sense of organizational trust, and that means fairness and transparency in the workplace, organizations who focus on that have higher engagement, higher loyalty, lower turnover, and lower incidence of negative workplace events. And that includes everything from theft to active shooter incidents. So it's really critical for us as um, a nation, but also from a national security perspective, where we're focused on not only protecting national security, but economic security, public health and safety. We have to get these best practices out to programs so that they can understand that More holistic role, as you put it, in mitigating risk. And, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? The fewer disgruntled employees you have, the less likely you are to have something rise to a level where it needs to ever be referred to law enforcement or counterintelligence. Um, We have seen lots of success with programs adopting this, both in the public and private sector, and the results are real. What we see are individuals who have been struggling. Um, And for a variety of reasons, but many of them we can all think about with the pandemic over the last couple of years. Talk about stress. um, Talk about people being thrown into work environments, say remote work that they weren't prepared for or used to. Talk about trying to do a a critical national security job, um, as many of your listeners do, while uh, remote schooling their first grader. Um, Financial issues came along with it. serious healthcare issues, loss of loved ones. What a time. Um, And we really encourage organizations to reach out to their people, not in a punitive way, not to say, hey, if you're experiencing all of this, you're a threat, but to recognize the vulnerability, to get people the tools they need to get through that tough time. And sometimes it might've been um, increased uh, security awareness or increased information on how to secure their remote devices. Sometimes it might've been financial counseling or mental health counseling, um, a whole variety uh, in the toolbox that really helps uh, reduce those vulnerabilities. Because I'll tell you what, Justin, if we don't take the steps to do that here, our adversaries will. They're very aware of the stressful environment that our federal workforce is under, and they know how to manipulate, how to leverage, how to target folks when they're at their most vulnerable. And even if they don't outright recruit them, it's a time when folks might be susceptible to things like subtle elicitation, where they're giving up information without even knowing it, where they're having poor security practices that introduce malware into systems, or a whole host of things that can occur um, when folks are just not at their best. And most federal organizations have lots of resources at their disposal, but there's been a real stigma against leveraging them. People are afraid if I get mental health counseling, it might affect my clearance. Or if I admit that I was supposed to enable multi factor authentication six months ago and I never did it, and now I admit it, I'm going to get kicked out. You know, we really work with our security practitioners, our insider threat practitioners, human resources, that whole team, so that we can really serve as a partnership with our workforce. Our most valuable asset, we have to give them the tools to harden themselves as targets, and to increase our resiliency. And that's a lot about what this awareness campaign from year to year is about.
1: And again, that's Rebecca Morgan, Deputy Assistant Director for Enterprise Threat Mitigation at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network.
0: With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions. Combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com.
1: Welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Rebecca Morgan, Deputy Assistant Director for Enterprise Threat Mitigation at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center about National Insider Threat Awareness Month. This year, the theme is uh, critical thinking in digital spaces. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means and why that's the focus this year? So what
0: what really brought it about was a confluence of a couple of things. So we already talked a little bit about the pandemic and we sort of all underwent this mass experiment in remote work, right? As some people had had it before, there weren't a lot of adopters in the federal government, but we went from very little adoption of that to broad. And we, um, in many cases, sort of sink or swim to our poor federal workforce who wants to get the mission done. They certainly wanted to continue to work through the darkest days of the pandemic, but they were forced to do it remotely and not always understanding some of the risks in that environment. And that can stem from everything from social engineering and phishing tactics to just not updating your software or updating your your requirements for your your homework environment. For example, is uh, Alexa or Siri listening in the background while you're doing your work. And even though I think most people are sophisticated enough to not do classified work in a remote environment, there's all kinds of risks that can come from um, unclassified but sensitive information. And whether that's technically CUI or just other sensitive things from PII and the like, it can really introduce risk to the environment. So there was that factor um, another factor that's really come to the forefront in the last couple of years is an increase in mis and disinformation and foreign malign influence campaigns perpetrated by our adversaries. And this can have a real negative effect on our federal workforce, in fact, on everybody, right? Like most folks um, out in the general public, our federal workforce gets a lot of their information in a digital format nowadays, that's just how it comes. But not everybody has the critical thinking skills um, or maybe are a little bit out of practice at things like verifying your sources or corroborating information, being able to recognize uh, a deep fake or a fake social media profile, being aware of some of the more sophisticated phishing techniques that have come um, about in the last couple of years, And what we really wanted to do for our federal workforce and our private sector partners was provide a toolkit for folks that they could really uh, foster their critical thinking skills, increasing their digital and media literacy capability, recognize things like cognitive bias and where we receive information, and also alert them to some of these new techniques. And this serves a variety of purposes. I mean, not only could people be acting on false information, which could cause harm to an organization or its mission. But we know that a lot of these misinformation and disinformation campaigns are used to sow discord. Uh, they're used to divide us. They're used to make us lose trust in our organizations, and in our institutions. And that all goes back to that negative workplace environment that we talked about as increasing vulnerability to risk. And so uh, the goal was to sort of pull all this together in some tools that could not only help our federal workforce, our assets, our human assets out there, but also help security practitioners and insider threat practitioners to understand the true risk environment that their people are facing so they could help them navigate through it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure just like most people, the federal workforce, uh, those especially who have been working from home, have been on social media more often than not since the COVID-19 pandemic began and have, have been getting a lot of information there. You know, th- this focus on mis and disinformation, are, are you finding that there are any best practices? Because that's something that everyone's really struggling with today, are there just some, some approaches that you're finding any success with in terms of ensuring that the, the federal workforce, especially the trusted workforce, isn't falling prey to false narratives and things like that?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the key, like it is to everything else, right, is knowing. You don't know what you don't know. So educating our workforce that this, this is a real practice. It's something that our adversaries, we see it from... I'm sure you can name off the top of your head the three big adversaries or some of the three that we always talk about. Uh, We see it from Russia. We see it from China. We see it from North Korea. And it takes a variety of forms. So we've seen everything from the Russians claiming that there were underground labs to build mutant troops for Ukraine to um, North Koreans developing very sophisticated fake social media profiles in order to target those in academia and research. Uh, we've seen the Chinese use malinformation campaigns in order to sway even local level elections over things you wouldn't expect. Like uh, there was a, a municipality in Texas that was looking to switch to hydropower, but like many things at the community level, it had to be voted upon because it was gonna be funded by taxpayer dollars. So. There was, you know, an opportunity to vote yes or no on prop, whatever it was, one, two, three. And the Chinese had a vested financial interest in the municipality not switching to hydropower. They campaigned heavily, a malign influence campaign, in order to kill that proposition. So we see this vast array of techniques, and not everybody's aware of it. Um, And our federal workforce is, of course, uh, heavily targeted particularly those with access, but I would say it goes beyond. So some of those, um, what we call non-Title 50 organizations, so those uh, departments and agencies who maybe don't have an obvious national security nexus, your Department of Labor, your Social Security, your Department of Education, we find increasingly that these organizations are targeted as well, um, whether it's to sway policy decisions, um, to sway public interest, uh, to gather unclassified information that might be valuable to decision and policymakers in foreign countries. Um, And so we really just want our workforce to be aware that this is real. It doesn't just happen in the movies. How to recognize it. And we have a lot of tools to help people do that. And then what they can do to stay safe. So everything from understanding your privacy settings, Um, understanding the rules around bring your own device and, you know, why we're not allowed to say email stuff to our personal email and work from home. You still have to use your official issued device or whatever your rules may be. Um, I think it helps everybody. We should respect the workforce enough to tell them why these rules exist, not just say thou shalt. And that's a big part of what we're doing. But there are a lot of uh, best practices and resources out there. We've, We've put out some materials related to recognizing deep fakes. We've worked with partners throughout the community, including those at DHS, uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, Security Agency. They have a ton of information on mis- and disinformation and malign influence, and it's all meant uh, to be consumed by um, the general workforce. You don't have to have a clearance to read it. It's really good stuff. We've partnered with um, the Personnel and Security Research Center and their threat lab. So uh, we invest pretty heavily in social and behavioral science research in order to um, determine the best ways to mitigate insider risk. So it's not just enough for Rebecca as deputy director of the task force to say, hey, this is a problem, here's how you solve it. We want real data-driven solutions to help folks mitigate risk. And we've had a lot of uh, great tools come out of there. And you can find many of those. We have a dedicated website for National Insider Threat Awareness Month, NITAM. If you Googled NITAM, you'd find it, or if you got got to it through the NCSC website. And then we also have partnered with others and they have conferences going on all month. We have videos, posters, job aids, all kinds of things that can be used year round Uh, to really uh, help our workforce protect against these kind of threats.
1: Got it. And, and, you know, just as a quick follow-up, are there any specific examples that you can share with us of uh, mis- or disinformation campaigns that have specifically targeted the federal workforce in any way, shape, or form?
0: So in this environment, I can say that they do exist, and I will also like to reiterate that, you know, I named a couple of big adversaries that use them, but truly this is a broad technique um, used by those who are uh, fostering not only foreign intelligence entities and their aims, but both foreign and domestic violent extremist organizations. These are tactics that are used A for recruitment, but B also to sow that desi- divisiveness, to create distrust in the workforce because that furthers their aims as well. Um, There have been instances where misinformation has been relied upon by decision makers and that misinformation was fed by um, malign foreign influences. And so we just see this increasingly for everybody and we wanna make sure that people recognize that, um, you know, each of us has a responsibility as a citizen but also as a federal employee to make sure that we're very cognizant of where the information is coming from, that it could be used for um, malign purposes, and to know what to do to protect ourselves. Think critically about where we're getting our data.
1: Got it. And I suspect there might be some overlap here, but how are you seeing social engineering efforts evolve? Um, how have you seen them evolve, especially within the past few, several years where folks, as we've discussed, have left kind of these trusted spaces uh, in federal offices and gone more remote?
0: So we've seen it evolve um, in a couple of ways. And one is adversarial techniques. So, um, you know, in the past, I feel like they took their traditional spot assess target recruit that they might have done um, in the analog world and moved it to social media. And it felt a little clunkier and it felt a little more obvious. And it might've been a little easier to spot, um, you know, somebody named Vlad suddenly friending you on LinkedIn or liking your TikTok dance and being able to flag that as a potential risk and alerting your security officer, understanding not to share information, but it's become so much more sophisticated and subtle. And so the ability to mask the source of of this profile or this individual is much more sophisticated. Um, You know, back in the old days, we would see things like the Nigerian Prince letters, right? And people would get targeted online and send money because we're gonna share millions. But the syntax would be weird in the letter, the pronouns would be off, there'd be misspellings. Your sophisticated adversaries do not misspell. There are no syntax errors. It looks as absolutely pristine as could be. And it's very, very easy to be duped. Uh, we see everything from um, fake websites that are just you know, a digit off from what looks like a legitimate official request. Um, frankly, we just received something within our offices within the last month that claimed to have a .gov URL, but was actually masking another party. Um, Luckily, most people didn't click on the links, but it happens. Um, And and even those of us who know and are trying to be careful can be very susceptible. We also see much more subtler forms of influence. So, um, you know, it is possible that we could see people that are solicited to outright spy more likely it's going to be a request uh, through much flattery to speak at a conference, to write a paper. And these are for very innocuous um, events or organizations. It doesn't say we are the PRC, um, but eventually it leads into a relationship where they can leverage either vulnerabilities of the individual to exploit them further, or just folks trusting nature and willingness to share information through sophisticated elicitation techniques. Uh, we've, we've also seen an evolution in phishing campaigns. Um, it went from email um, and phone. We now see it via text. I'm sure many of your listeners have received those texts saying, click here. Um, either you're gonna get money or you are supposed to respond. You know, This is a workforce response thing. Uh, uh, go to this website, all kinds of techniques, and they will continue to evolve and they will absolutely outpace our expertise as security professionals. So it really helps for us uh, to partner with our workforce, to partner with our insiders, because they're the ones that are often going to see these techniques first. And by reporting to us, they can help alert the rest of the workforce and really help us find ways around it. One thing, um, if I could have one thing that I wish that our federal workforce would take away from this conversation or the broader campaign is how much we rely on those insiders. We call them insiders for a reason. They are the in-crowd. They are the people that really serve as our sensors out there to understand not only foreign intelligence entities, but criminals, hackers, Sometimes uh, it's even domestic groups that are targeting or trying to do harm. And it's really our people that are the in that they try to get to, but it's our people that save us every time. And it's really great folks who are willing to step forward to the Insider Threat Program and say, look, I'm not sure, but I might have been approached. Do you want to look into this? Those people are not going to get in trouble. Um, but in fact, what they're probably going to do is raise awareness for everybody in their organization or sometimes even the entire intelligence community will learn about a new MO because a brave person stepped up to share their experience.
1: You know, there was the, the case um, recently of, you know, a, an individual in uh, California who pled guilty to acting as an unregistered agent of China after an individual in China, posing as online as a job recruiter, had contacted him um, with a "quote unquote" consulting opportunity, and, and he ended up su- supplying some a- U.S. aviation information to individuals who were connected to the Chinese government. That's that's one example, I suppose. I guess, I guess of of what's a specific type of social engineering scenario that, you know, federal workers should be concerned about, right? Like online job recruiters, they're everywhere right now. It's a tight job market, a lot of recruitment going on, but not everything is as it seems in every case.
0: Absolutely. And I certainly, you know, apply to anybody looking for that next level job and to move on, absolutely can do it. But there are some things you can do to keep yourself safe. We actually have a job aid And it is, uh, let me get the title right, because it's long. It's Employment Application Risks and Mitigation for Insiders with National Security Eligibility. Um, You can get to that through the NITAM or through our partner websites. And this really goes into some of the techniques to recognize recruitment, the information that you may or may not share on your resume or post, say on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a very great place to build your career, build your networks, would never say that people shouldn't use it. You just have to use it wisely. And what we're looking for are organizations that um, are promising things that are too good to be true. Even in a tight job market, um, it still can be too good to be true. And so folks who are looking to hire without really wanting to do an interview, that would be a red flag. Folks that are looking to exclusively do remote. And again, there's nothing wrong with remote. We all want that dream remote job that pays us big bucks. But if there's no opportunity to even through video, engage with the recruiter or a supervisor there, that would be another red flag. I would say on the flip side, for those who are looking to employ individuals, um, we've seen a rise in the number of folks where we have using resumes and application submissions as a way for our adversaries to get on the inside. We've seen both um, folks who are posing um, as US citizens or um, coming in uh, with the intent to cause harm, looking to get jobs, but we've also seen folks who um, take a job and then they outsource the actual work to a third party often overseas. Um, this has happened both in the public and private sector. So an individual who passes all the clearances and passes all the mustard gets hired. And then they're outsourcing the work to somebody overseas to do. Well, obviously that's allowing somebody else in, it's sharing sensitive information. So we're really looking at it from both angles. Um, I would say that, you know, the key thing is to increase your critical thinking skills use that digital literacy, verify sources, look up companies that are making these offers to you and ensure that you're following all those common sense best practices that sometimes in the thrill of like a phenomenal job offer can be hard to do because we're so excited. Um, But just taking those common sense steps can be really helpful. And I'll tell you what, your security office back at your federal workplace will be more than happy to help you evaluate Um, uh, they, they want to know, and they're not going to certainly stop you from looking for your next great professional adventure, but they can help you sometimes determine if this is legit or if this is something that's been reported before as potentially trying to recruit, um, or, um, elicit information from the federal
1: workforce. Got it. Well, some good advice there for really anyone out there, but certainly for the federal workforce. And um, you know, it's it strikes me so much of what we're talking about in this digital space has a lot of overlap with with cybersecurity and what the cybersecurity community is concerned with. And they're certainly grappling right now. Both agencies and and companies, uh, big tech companies, are are trying to move to more of a zero trust model where you never trust fully trust anyone with any information you verify, they should have access. And, you know, there's a lot of technical things that go into doing something like a zero trust concept. But um, I'm wondering, you know, what's the overlap in in your world with with cybersecurity, with the CIO community and things like that? How are you working with your colleagues there?
0: That is a great question. And they are truly one of the key partners that we have in insider risk mitigation. On the federal workforce side, it's actually mandated that that insider threat program have cybersecurity representation and they can serve both um, the prevention, uh, the deterrence, the detection of behaviors of concern, as well as some mitigation strategies. So they're very tied in, always have been. And we really do work together to look at capabilities that we might have to limit those vulnerabilities that we talked about with our workforce on the digital side. Zero trust architecture is the next big thing. It's phenomenal. The ability to firewall not just around the network, but around data sets themselves, better access management. It provides a great boon to information protection, particularly for our federal partners who are uh, beginning to implement this, as well as many private sector organizations. I will say this, though, and this is something I talk a lot about with my CISO pals is that our adversaries are very persistent. So you can have well implemented zero trust and people are pinging right and left and they're getting denied. They're not getting in, they're not getting the information. That is awesome. And the cyber team should absolutely be high-fiving each other. But what they need to be doing after they high-five each other is pivot over to the insider threat shop and say, hey, we have seen a ton of activity lately. You might wanna let your folks in your workforce know because when the adversary cannot get into the network, where do they go the path of least resistance? And that is often the human in the organization. And so what we see is that if they can't get in through the network, they're gonna go to the human and they're going to look to elicit or fish Um, information that's going to give them enough to get past that architecture or to just, never mind getting into the system at all, just elicit the information that they actually desire out of it in hand or to upload malware, all kinds of things. And so we really want to work in tandem with our cybersecurity partners so that we have this holistic enterprise approach to security at an organization. And we often, unfortunately, are a bit siloed Um, You know, InfoSec sits over here, CI sits over here, OpSec sits over here, Cyber sits over here, Physical Security sits over here. That real goal of the Insider Threat Hub is to get people talking and say, again, we've been getting all these pings on the system. Well, we're going to send out a notice to the workforce that says, hey, we seem to be a high target lately. Everybody remember Look out for social engineering in your online workplace. Pay attention and make sure you've updated your system requirements and updated all your patches. Hey, physical security. You might see people driving by taking pictures or trying to observe the workforce coming and going. Pay attention to that. We want to get to that holistic enterprise defense approach, and by partnering with cybersecurity is a great way for us to do that.
1: Got it. All right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here today, but one thing I did want to make sure I asked you about is um, updates on insider threat information sharing with industry. I know there's been this big push in industry to have the government share more information that they have on individuals who companies um, may, may employ or may be looking to hire. Um, do you have any updates on, on any progress there?
0: Sure. So uh, there's a a couple of ways that we share information with our private sector partners. And so I think you're specifically referring to those under the National Industrial Security Program and individuals who have positions of trust or access uh, or, or clearance eligibility determinations. And so that would be done from a personnel security perspective rather than an insider threat program perspective. So Insider Threat, I said, is holistic, multidisciplinary. We all, all the programs have personnel security as part of that hub. If there is information that rises to the level that it meets adjudicative guidelines for adverse information reporting, then that is shared with personnel security. And then that is used to make eligibility determinations. And that would also include notification to Um, the organization that would be the cognizant security agency for that particular contract. And then they will work with the contract owner to share information when appropriate. I do wanna say that uh, protecting the privacy and the civil liberties of the workforce is paramount. It is absolutely required in the policy. And so that level of information sharing is not done lightly. And it is always done in coordination with legal counsel. But that is absolutely an avenue. I know for many folks, the Cognizant Security Agency is the DOD Counterintelligence and Security Agency, DCSA, who owns that personnel security vetting mission for many of our federal partners. And they do work closely um, to ensure that information is shared appropriately um, and in a timely manner. And I think we all know these were lessons learned from things like Erin Alexis case or Navy Yard shooter, um, but also Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks. There are lots of precedents that we have where when we don't share information in a timely manner, we open ourselves up to greater risk and to cause harm. But it really does have to be balanced with the privacy and civil liberties of the workforce. And so we work closely to make sure we do that. Um, Other things that we do also share with the private sector are best practices, mitigation techniques, uh, maturity models for running insider risk programs, how to do these holistic um, um, risk mitigation practices in their organizations. And we work not only with the defense industrial base, whom we've mentioned, but in the last few years, we've worked really closely with healthcare and public health sector That's was supporting Operation Warp Speed. Uh, we've worked with the food and agriculture sector who have experienced unprecedented amounts of economic espionage um, as well as their potential counterterrorism threats for intentional adulteration or contamination, for example. This last year we worked really closely with the financial sector. Uh, this is a, a huge target, not only phishing uh, and misinformation, but they're also uh, often an early adopter of some of the emerging critical technologies that we use out there. So we've worked closely with them. And then we also work closely with research and academic communities. And we've developed real specific resources for each of those private sector from the DIB to food and ag, because we understand that practicing proactive, holistic insider threat has nuances and challenges that are different depending on the industry that you're in. And we want to make sure we're not just giving people sort of this blanket information that, hey, it worked for the intelligence community, it'll work for you, when that's not really the case. So we have really targeted resources, job aids, Um, we've held threat awareness seminars for those different sectors, because we do understand that there are nuances and we want to make sure we're giving people information that is actually useful and can be relevant to them.
1: Got it. Well, Are there any um, specific sectors or areas that you're focusing on perhaps within the next year that, that you can preview for us at this point?
0: Sure. And so we're winding down a little bit of our, our financial sector, although I'll tell you, we, we, we add, we don't detract. So we still do the DIV, we still do critical manufacturing, we still do food and egg, we'll continue to do financial, but we really are pivoting this year to an initiative we call Safeguarding Science. And our goal is to really support those in both the public and the private sector who are developing those next-gen emerging technologies. And those range from everything from quantum computing, the bioeconomy, artificial intelligence, unmanned vehicles, Um, semiconductors, uh, those real critical elements that will not only um, protect uh, national security, but drive the future of our economy um, and our ability to keep ourselves safe. A lot of those are dual use technologies uh, that we not only do we not want our advances to fall into the wrong hands, But there's a real risk that we could fall behind and then not have access to the capabilities we need to protect uh, public health and safety, economic security, national security. So we are working with um, partners throughout the federal government, including folks, uh, for example, at the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Standard and Technology, um, DHS, FAA, Health and Human Services, many, many others, who have equities and these developments, but also those private sector partners, the labs, uh, the research facilities, and those out there in the tech sector who are really driving this next-gen development, not because we want to control it, not because we want to stifle innovation, but because we want people to understand the vulnerabilities that are out there and some of these very simple techniques and methods they can adopt to keep um, their intellectual property safe, to keep their people safe from targeting um, and recruitment. We've certainly seen that happen in the private sector and to make sure that they're well positioned to have those next great leaps in technology that are going to move everybody forward.
1: All right. Yeah, Rebecca, before I sign us off, is there anything that you wanted to discuss that I haven't asked you about?
0: No, I thanks for the opportunity. I just always really like the chance to be able to talk directly with the federal workforce, and it's really important to me that folks understand what these programs are about. I know that, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, doesn't always go over well with people, Um, and there is still that little bit of a fear that we're a gotcha program and that we're out there to get people, but it's really not the case. Um, Now, to be sure, if somebody's doing something wrong, we'll refer it out to law enforcement, security, CI, and they'll handle it. But the role of the Insider Threat Program itself is really to build up and protect that workforce. Um, and, And we're here for you. So if there's something that your Insider Threat Program is not doing or could be doing better, let us at the task force know it's our job to set that standard for the national programs. And we wanna make sure that we're doing it and we're doing it in a way that helps build the trust and really leverages the the great skill set that we have out there in the federal workforce so so we can keep everybody safe.
1: All right. Well, there's certainly a lot to be paying attention to that's coming out of your office there. So uh, Rebecca Morgan, she's Deputy Assistant Director for Enterprise Threat Mitigation at the NCSE, also Deputy Director of the National Insider Threat Task Force. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks, Justin, so much. Have a great day.
1: Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.